Recently, I had the privilege of serving as an officiant in a wedding for a young couple in our church. And the wedding was held at this beautiful venue in downtown Troy. And Nikki and I were really grateful to be able to be present as this couple exchanged vows and became husband and wife. Following the ceremony, as is often the case, a meal was to be served. And as we made our way to our table and took our seats, we noticed at each of the seats, there was a menu listing all the food options for that evening. So naturally, I was a bit curious, and I started to read over the menu, and I saw some great offerings. There was beef tenderloin, there was salmon, there was salad. And then I noticed a menu item I had never tried before in all of my life. This wedding, which undoubtedly had many vegetarians in attendance, had as an option vegan macaroni and cheese. Now, I don't know about you, but Nikki and I, we could be considered foodies. I mean, we love to cook, we love to eat, we love watching cooking shows, and by most standards, we are pretty adventurous eaters. But although that is the case, I found myself somewhat on the fence at the prospect of trying vegan macaroni and cheese for the very first time. I mean, on the one hand, I have tried all different sorts of macaroni and cheese over the years and enjoyed all of them. I've had that macaroni and cheese made with eggs that achieves an almost quiche-like fluffiness, and it's absolutely delicious. I've also enjoyed macaroni and cheese, like my dad's mother made it, on the stove. And there it almost becomes a bit like fondue with some noodles mixed in it. It is absolutely wonderful. Perhaps you've had another variety of macaroni and cheese, the kind where you make the traditional macaroni and cheese and then you sprinkle some breadcrumbs on top and then toast it for that added texture. I've had that, and it was delicious as well. But while there are all these different variations with macaroni and cheese that I have loved, all of them still had two common ingredients. One, they contain some kind of a noodle, and two, they contain one of God's great gifts to mankind, cheese. Vegan macaroni and cheese, on the other hand, does not contain any dairy at all. And I began to wonder, what do they use instead of cheese in vegan mac and cheese? So curious, I leaned over to my wife, who has a bit of an encyclopedic knowledge level of food, and I said, what do vegans use in macaroni and cheese as a substitute for the cheese? She answered, you ready for this? Cashews and nutritional yeast. Mm, 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 mm. Everyone's favorite. I couldn't believe it. Cashews and yeast. What in the world is nutritional yeast anyway? Whatever it is, I felt pretty confident there's no way it could hold a candle to real cheese. I mean, who do these vegans think they are, right? How could you possibly think you could replace something as wonderful as cheese with cashews and nutritional yeast? 
How absurd. Well, as it turns out, I did try the vegan macaroni and cheese, and it honestly was very good. I mean, it wasn't real macaroni and cheese levels of good, but it was good enough that I enjoyed it, and I would eat it again in the future. Well, regardless of what you think of vegan macaroni and cheese, whether you love it or you wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, one thing is absolutely certain about it, and that is this. If we're being honest, vegan macaroni and cheese, it ain't macaroni and cheese. Oh, sure, it may contain pasta. It might be yellow and gooey. People may even call it macaroni and cheese. But hear me this morning. If you subtract the foundational ingredient of cheese, it simply ceases to be macaroni and cheese. Well, in this respect, the Christian faith is a lot like macaroni and cheese. You see, within our faith, there are all these numerous legitimate expressions and varieties. Within our faith, there are those who see things differently on certain issues. And within our faith, there are those who lay emphasis on certain aspects of our faith. And the reality is we should make room for that and be okay agreeing on disagreeing. But Christianity does have a lowest common denominator. Our faith does have an irreducible minimum. Our faith does contain certain truths that if you strip them out, you cease to have Christianity. You cease to have the faith and the teaching of Jesus. Well, last week, we kicked off a two-week sermon series entitled, No More, No Less. And last week, we saw that in Deuteronomy 4, God issues a stern warning about not adding or subtracting from his word. We saw last week that the Pharisees routinely added to the word of God by their traditions and customs and man-made laws. And this week, we're going to pivot and turn our attention not to the Pharisees, but rather to those Sadducees. The Sadducees who erred not by adding to God's word, but by subtracting from God's word. So today, I want to begin with a quick review, although we touched on this last week, by asking the question, who were the Sadducees? We saw last week that during the time of Jesus, there were three primary groups within Judaism, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, we noted, were the very highly educated group within Judaism. They were very aristocratic. They were very high status. And many of them were the priests that oversaw the temple in Jerusalem. We also noted that the Sadducees, unlike Jesus and unlike the Pharisees, did not accept all of the Old Testament as the word of God and authoritative. Rather, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy, as authoritative. The Sadducees were not the theological conservatives like the Pharisees were. The Sadducees were actually theologically liberal. 
But what exactly did the Sadducees teach? What did they believe? What did they embrace? And what was their teaching? Well, there's a first century historian who's roughly contemporaneous with Jesus by the name of Josephus. This first century historian was a Jewish man by the name of Josephus, and today we have many, many, many writings of his still in existence. You can read all these different books that he wrote, and scholars agree he was a legitimate first century historian. And Josephus actually talks about the Sadducees in one of his works. We're going to put this quote up here on the screen. Josephus, writing about Judaism in the first century, says the Jews, for a great while, they had three sects of philosophy peculiar to themselves. The Essenes, the Sadducees, and the third sort of opinions was that of those called Pharisees. And when you look at what the Sadducees actually taught in the remainder of this quote, you'll see why I call them theologically liberal. Josephus goes on to say, the doctrine or the teaching of the Sadducees is this, souls die with the bodies. The Sadducees taught that the soul evidently was not immortal. The Sadducees did not necessarily believe in a heaven, and they certainly didn't believe in a future resurrection. According to Josephus, an extra-biblical first-century historian, that's what he says. This lines up perfectly with a historian in the New Testament by the name of Luke, what he says about the Sadducees in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. In the book of Acts, Luke writes, the Sadducees say, there's no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Think about that for a moment, if you will. One of the main groups within Judaism during the time of Jesus, those that really oversaw temple worship, some of the most highly educated men out there, denied the immortality of the soul, heaven, angels, and the resurrection. Now, how can that be? How is this even possible? Well, one explanation that people have put out there is it all comes back to that question of the Bible. You see, the Sadducees, as we noted, only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the Psalms and the writings and the prophets. And in those writings and Psalms and the prophets, we see a lot more about angels, the supernatural, and the resurrection. And so some people say, this is why the Sadducees got it wrong. Basically, they did not include all the right books in their Bible. But that doesn't really hold water because we know that the Sadducees believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And within that, you find many occurrences of angels. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar is visited by an angel. A few chapters later, Lot, before he's rescued from Sodom, is visited by angels. If you go further through the book of Genesis, Abraham has multiple encounters with angels. So again, I ask the question, how did the Sadducees get something so obvious, so basic, 
so clear wrong? How is it that they denied the spiritual realm, the immortality of the soul, and the resurrection? Well, in order to answer that, we're going to really get into today's main passage, and that is found in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, we have an exchange between the Sadducees and Jesus. And they pose this scenario to him to attempt to embarrass him. You see, this is a public setting, and the Sadducees are trying to give this question to Jesus that's going to show the absurdity of what Jesus taught and what many Jews believe, that there would be a resurrection one day. So let's turn to that passage in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23, it says, that same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, they're kind of trying to set a trap here for Jesus, teacher, rabbi, guru, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left to his wife. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. If there's a resurrection, ridiculous, but if there is a resurrection, they thought to themselves, how do you explain this? Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, let's just time out for a moment here and kind of ask what in the world is going on? Well, in the Old Testament, there was this command given to the Jewish people under the law in the Old Covenant, something that was commanded that we call leveret marriage. And basically, here's how that worked. If a Jewish man married a Jewish woman and the Jewish man died without giving any children to that woman, his next youngest brother was to marry that woman. There's two main reasons why this existed. One reason was to carry on the man's family name and lineage. But another huge reason why this was sort of built into the fabric of Jewish life was because of the security it offered the woman. You see, during the time of Moses, there was no social security program. There was no 401k. And usually the husbands would die far earlier than the wives. And so your children were really your retirement plan. Your husband was almost certainly going to die before you if you were a Jewish woman. And who would then take care of you, shelter you, provide for you, in your latter years. Well, that would be your children. So leveret marriage was given in part to carry on the man's name and legacy, but it was also given to provide security and provision for these widows. And the Sadducees cook up this ridiculous scenario where they say, let's say there were seven brothers. The first one marries a woman. He dies, no kids. Second one marries, dies, no kids, all the way down to the seventh. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And again, what they're trying to do is trap Jesus, ask him a question that he cannot answer. By the way, if you 
knew a woman, had six husbands that died somewhat mysteriously. I don't know that I'd want to be the seventh, but at any rate, they posed this ridiculous scenario to Jesus. And of course, it blows up in their face. It backfires because Jesus cuts through all the noise. He doesn't even get involved in the minutia of the argument and, well, Moses and all this legal stuff. He just cuts to the heart of the matter, and we see that in verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong, you Sadducees. You're in error. You've got this all mixed up and twisted. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus cuts through all the noise, all the minutia, all the details of this ridiculous scenario and says, let me get to the heart of the issue. Your main problem, Sadducees, is not trying to see how these commands within the law of Moses kind of push and pull against each other and you're really just legitimately trying to find the right solution. No, here's your problem. You don't know the power of God and you, you highly educated, well-respected scholars, you do not know the scriptures. Well, what exactly was Jesus getting at when he said that? What did he mean when he said, you don't know the power of God, you Sadducees, and you do not know the scriptures? Well, with the remainder of our time, that's exactly what we are going to look at today. Beginning with the statement of Jesus, where he exposes their catastrophic error, he says to them, you do not know the power of God. Well, when Jesus says to these Sadducees, you do not know the power of God, in essence, what he is saying is this. You Sadducees who strip out the supernatural, you Sadducees who subtract from the word of God, you Sadducees who deny the miraculous, when you do that, you're showing your true colors because the reality is your ultimate trust, your ultimate confidence, your ultimate faith is not in God and his word, but rather in man and man's word. You see, when it comes to where we place our ultimate confidence, our ultimate faith, our ultimate trust with the big questions of life, morality, and the afterlife, when we think about where we put that ultimate confidence and trust, we can put it in one of two places. We can either put it in God and his word, or we can put it in man and his word, but we cannot put it in both. It's kind of like when Jesus said, you can't serve God and money at the same time, you'll have to pick one over the other. It's kind of the same idea here. When it comes to where we place our ultimate confidence, our ultimate faith, we can put it in God or we can put it in man. And there's kind of this inverse relationship going on, this sort of seesaw effect, where the more our confidence in God goes up, the more our confidence in man tends to go down. On the flip side, if our confidence in man starts to go up, our confidence in God starts to drop down. 
And that's really what the Sadducees did. They had ultimately transferred their confidence away from God and his word and placed their trust in man. The sobering reality is all of us get to make that choice. Whether we're going to place our trust in God or place our trust in man. Now, you can do what you want, but if you want to know God's opinion on the matter, I would point you to the book of Psalms, verse 118. Psalm 118, verse 8 says this, it is far better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in in princes. In other words, it's much better to place that confidence and trust in God than it is in man. But if we're being honest, for so many of us, oftentimes we do find ourselves, unfortunately, not really doing that big trust fall in God's direction, but rather in man's direction. I mean, let's be real about it. For so many of us, we have a difficult time with this. When there's a fork in the road and we have to put our trust, confidence, and faith in something God says or something man says, for many of us, we tend to put our confidence in what man says. Sometimes placing our trust in man simply looks like this. It's just trusting in ourselves. Sometimes that's what trust in man looks like. I trust in my own reasoning. I trust in my own assumptions. I trust in my own experiences. I trust in my own understanding. And if I can't understand it or I haven't experienced it, it's easy to deny it. Well, maybe the Sadducees were guilty of that very thing. Maybe the Sadducees thought to themselves, you know what? I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. And by the way, how would that even work? I can't even wrap my mind around it. I don't understand how that's even a possibility. I don't understand it, and I've never experienced it, and therefore, it must not be true. Well, if that's the conclusion that we come to in life, we should know that we're placing our trust in man and man's word rather than in God and God's word. But on the other hand, maybe the Sadducees weren't guilty of that at all. Maybe them placing their trust in man looked totally different. Maybe the Sadducees weren't relying in their own intuition and experience when it came to denying the resurrection. Maybe they studied the scriptures and said, you know what, there's actually a pretty good case to be made for this whole resurrection thing and for angels and for the supernatural. And you know what, I think it's plausible, no, even likely that there is a resurrection. Maybe it was that they weren't relying on their own intuition and that's what got them off course. Maybe instead, for them, trusting in man looked like having way too much confidence in what the experts out there were saying. Maybe the Sadducees thought there's a good case for the resurrection in the scriptures and it kind of makes sense 
Why would God create all this if it had nothing lasting, no enduring purpose? I kind of feel like there probably is a resurrection, but you know what? Smarter men than I have come to different conclusions. The reality is, among God's people, there have always been those who will refuse to embrace any belief that draws the ire of the intelligentsia around them. And perhaps that's what trusting in man looked like for the Sadducees. But regardless of those details, whether the Sadducees were trusting in their own experience and intuition, or if the Sadducees were trusting in the intelligentsia and the elites around them, whatever the particulars might have been, Jesus's confrontation and exposing their error is crystal clear. He says to them in verse 29, here's your problem. Here are your catastrophic mistakes, you Sadducees. You don't know the power of God, and you don't know the Scriptures. Well, what does Jesus mean when he tells them they don't know the Scriptures? These were the most educated scholars of the day. They would have studied the Scriptures, and even if they rejected the prophets, they rejected the Psalms and the writings, they probably still studied them and found value in them. They were certainly familiar with them enough to debate. How could Jesus tell the smartest people within Judaism, you do not know the scriptures? Well, to put it simply, I think what Jesus is really putting his finger on here is not so much that the Sadducees didn't know them academically or intellectually. Rather, the problem was with their orientation to the scriptures. See, it wasn't a question of they haven't read the Bible, they haven't studied the Bible, they haven't thought about and discussed and debated the Bible. It's pretty clear that wasn't their problem. Their problem had to do with their orientation to the scriptures. You see, I have to think that the Sadducees were a lot like people in our day that do not see themselves as being subject to the scriptures, but rather see the scriptures as being subject to them. And boy, that is so, so common in the church today. It can kind of look like this. You're reading through the Bible, you're a Christ follower, and you come across some command and that command is really going to interfere with your lifestyle and your vices. And so instead of changing and adjusting your life to line up with the word, you change and adjust the word to line up with your life. We get engaged with all of these novel and new and self-serving and convenient interpretations and voila, I'm out from under that command. It's no problem. I just read through the word, come across a command. Oh, that doesn't really feel like something I want to implement into my life. So I'll just interpret it away and go on my merry way. Well, that's one way people show that they view the scriptures as being subject to them instead of them being subject to the scriptures. But there's another way that's very popular in our day as well. 
<laughs> That's when you're reading through the Bible and you come to some command there that really swims upstream against the culture. Something you think, boy, if I embrace that, that's just not the greatest fashion statement right now. And the concern is not so much with accommodating our own sinful patterns and habits as it is not wanting to go against the culture. And so, hey, there's an easy life hack for that too. You just tell yourself, you know what? The Bible is inspired. There's some good things in here. There's some truth in here. But you know, if I tell myself there's also some error mixed in, that this is kind of a mixed bag, then I've got an out. Because every time I come to a passage I don't like, I'll just say, that must have been one of the errors. And I wiggle out from under it and go on my merry way. Well, when we do that, when we, through our self-serving interpretations, wiggle out from a command in Scripture, or when we tell ourselves, you know what, the Bible's a mixed bag, some truth, some error, and therefore I can treat it like a buffet and just obey the commands I naturally want to. Whenever we do that, we need to know that we, just like the Sadducees, are subtracting from the word of God. And just like that vegan macaroni and cheese, if you mess around and pull out the wrong ingredient, you'll be left with something that isn't Christianity at all. A few weeks ago, Pastor Rex preached an amazing mini-series on deconstruction. If you haven't watched that, go back online and watch that. It was an amazing sermon series. And in that sermon series, deconstruction and reconstruction, we saw that there are certain times where it is appropriate for us to subtract certain things out of our lives, to subtract certain things from our faith. In fact, Pastor X was so bold as to say, here are some areas where we should do some deconstructing, some removal, some stripping out, some subtracting. And that is so true. Whenever we add to the word of God, like we saw the Pharisees did last week, we should subtract and remove them because they're additions. It's a great word from Pastor Rex. But if you're someone who is in the midst of deconstruction in your own faith right now, you better be careful about what you strip out and subtract. In your deconstruction, you better be careful about what walls you knock down. Because there are many walls that you ought not knock down. The wall of the supernatural, you should not knock that down. The wall of the authority of the word of God, you should not knock that down. The wall of the gospel, the wall of the resurrection, any of those universally held, timeless tenets of our faith that show up in things like, say, the Nicene Creed, for example, or the Apostles' Creed, you need to be careful if you're deconstructing about not knocking those walls down. The reason? Those are load-bearing walls. 
And if you knock those down, the Christian faith will buckle and ultimately collapse. God, in his great wisdom and grace, gave us his word. He reveals himself through his word. He gives us his commands, which are for our good and for his glory. And we should be dead set on taking that seriously. Every genuine follower of Jesus should say yes and amen to what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.14. There we read this. I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. God gave us his perfect, holy word. We should make it our life's aim to follow every last letter contained for us living under the new covenant, but no more and no less. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together to gather, and we thank you for giving us instructions to keep us on the right path. Lord, one person said that the church is like a drunk walking down a street that staggers and falls into a ditch on one side of the street, gets up, dusts himself off, only to fall into the ditch on the other side of the street. God, may it not be so with us at Grace Fellowship. May we never add to or subtract from your perfect holy word. God, we thank you for this warning, and we pray that you would impress it upon our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.